You guys feel well rested? Oh, too bad if you don't, but I do. Um, we're going to do something this morning in church, like break things. Uh, we're going to do some things this morning in church we don't normally do. There's going to be a lot of audience participation, number one. And number two, if you have a smartphone or a tablet that can connect to a network, take your phone out. Take out your device, put it up in the air. Okay? We're actually going to use this right now. We're going to, I'm going to ask you a question in just a moment, and we're going to take a live poll of that question that's going to show up on the screen. So to do that, follow these steps. Number one, open up your browser. We've never done this in church before. What do we do? Open it up and go to this website. It starts with the infamous www. I just typed WWE. Don't do that. That's, that's like fifth grade wrestling right there. www.livevotingappapp.com. Okay, we're going to do a live vote. So livevotingapp.com. If you don't have a smartphone, you will be able to share your neighbors because multiple people can vote. This is how it's going to go. This question is that important. We need to see everyone do it. Livevotingapp.com. Are you guys there? Put your phone up in the air if you're there so I can kind of get a, get a good glimpse of where people are. Most of you are like, I don't use my phone in church, Jared. We're not supposed to do this. You got it out? All right, you should see a, a box for you to type something and then hit join. Type the following, all lowercase, KCBC, for Kent City Baptist Church, and then hit join. And once you do that, you should say, see something that says, waiting for the next question. Put your phone open there if you see that. Waiting for the next question. Okay, if there are people by you that don't have a phone, let them vote too. Only vote one time, and I ask you, please vote with integrity. Okay? We need to have an, as honest of an assessment as we can have here. All right, Declan, go ahead and make the question live. The question is this. Are the scriptures clear to you? Now look at your phone. There's three options. Number one, it says, almost always. So if you're on that side, you're over here. Keep, go ahead and vote. Almost always. Whenever you read the Bible, it just seems to make sense. You get most of it. Maybe you're in the middle. Maybe you think sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense at all. Kind of half and half. Maybe I don't know how to read or how to interpret my Bible. And then if you're on the other side, you'll be over here and say, maybe I'm a new Christian. Maybe somebody never taught me how to read the Bible. And so if that's the case, put hardly ever. All right, keep voting, guys. Look at this live action up here. Look at this go. 6%. All right. So I'll give you guys maybe 102 devices connect. Good job, guys. Way to go. Way to be techie. You guys are like, Jared, you're the techie pastor. You got that right. All right, take a look at our results. I think when we come to church, we assume that everybody knows how to read and apply the Bible. I think we all assume that, right? We've been here, for, we come every week. You better know this by now. But as you can see, a lot of people said almost always that blue sliver, but look at that uh, black sliver and the green one. Some of the time, 51% of us, and hardly ever 8% of us. There are some of us here in this very room that don't feel confident that I actually know how to read the scriptures and apply them. When I'm reading them, I don't really know what they're saying. Maybe it's talking about this whole sacrificial system and the law. Maybe I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with that. Maybe there are times where you don't know what to do with one of Jesus' teaching. You're like, how, okay, I've read it, I'm reading the words, but I don't know how to apply that. 
this is the topic for today. You can go ahead and close that down, Declan. Thank you guys for doing that, for humoring me with that, with that awesome live poll. What we're going to talk about today is the topic of the clarity of the scriptures. The past few weeks, we've talked about very heady things. We've talked about their authority, their inerrancy, things of that nature. But today, we're talking specifically about how we understand them, how we apply them. And we call it the clarity of the scriptures. So we're going to go over a few different things today. All right, the first one we're going to touch on is what the clarity of the scriptures means and what it doesn't mean. The next thing we're going to talk about is some common objections that you might hear people say or maybe you have thought yourself about clarity. And the third one is we're going to get very practical, and that's going to be the audience participation time where I get this, guys. I actually want you to talk in the middle of the service. The extroverts are really excited right now. The introverts are terrified out of their mind. Oh, no. What do I do? I might say something wrong. So we're going to talk about that. And lastly, we're going to talk about what... What happens when we read a portion of the scriptures and it's not clear? <gasps> what do we do then? Is our faith shaken? Do we give up? Or are there some other things we can do? So we're going to talk about those things today. But before we do, let's uh, just join in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Help me to communicate it clearly. And I ask that as a result of today, that each one of us would feel and know that we can know you, and that we can know what you have revealed. That's my simple prayer. Amen. Amen. So, first thing is the clarity of the scriptures. What does this mean? What does this not mean? We're going to start with what it doesn't mean. When we say that the scriptures are clear, we are not saying that everything in the Bible is easy to understand. Everyone take a deep breath. Let it out. That should be a sigh of relief to us, because if you've ever come across a difficult passage, maybe you've thought, oh no, it's just me. Everyone else understands this, and I don't. Oh, no. The reality is, is not everything in the Bible is easy to understand. It can be understood. Let me make that very clear. But it's not always easy to understand. Secondly, what it doesn't mean, saying that the scriptures are clear does not mean that everyone will agree on how we interpret the scriptures. There are going to be things that we can't budge on. In our church, we have, we have the idea of the absolutes. These are the things that make us Orthodox Christians that we will never move on. There's things outside of that circle, like a bullseye, where those, these are our convictions. We hold these strongly, believe these strongly, but we understand other Christians have different convictions, and that's okay with us. And then there's preferences, even on the farther, farther ring, that says, you know what, we all might have our own preferred way to understand certain things that really don't, they're not as consequential as the absolutes are. So, a perfect example of this is just end times or millennial views. If you've ever studied this before, you know that many good Christians believe differently about what's going to happen in the end. The sequence of it, how exactly it all pans out. You have people who are pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill. In the middle of that, there's people that believe in the rapture and that there's going to be a pre-tribulation rapture or a mid-tribulation rapture or a post. You can understand the scriptures differently on certain things that are amb ambiguous like this, but... There are wrong ways to still interpret and right ways to interpret those things. So all we're saying is that everything, or everybody, especially everybody in this room, is not going to always agree on everything, and that's okay too. Lastly, we're saying the clarity of the scriptures does not mean that we are going to understand everything perfectly and exhaustively. For people who have more uh, anal tendencies, this is going to be a hard one for you because you feel like you need to know something fully before you ever try it or give, give it a run. But the reality of it is, is we serve a God who is infinite 
in every possible attribute he has. We call it his perfections. He's infinite in love and in holiness and in justice and righteousness and wisdom. We're not any of those things. So we have to understand, when we go to understand God, we're not always going to understand it perfectly, but that doesn't mean that we can't understand it correctly. Does that make sense? Does that distinction make sense? might not be perfect, but we can understand it correctly or rightly. All right, we're going to look together at a, a definition of the clarity of the scriptures up on the screen. And this is pretty wordy, but I'll break it down we'll explain it. The clarity of the scriptures, this is from the Westminster Confession. So if you've ever been a part of a Reformed church, you're much more familiar with this confession than others. But it says this about the clarity of the scriptures. All things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due sense or in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Wordy, right? It's a little bit wordy, but what it's saying is, let's just break it down. Not everything in scripture is plain and clear to everybody. And that's okay. Yet, the things which we need to know for salvation, the things we need to know about God, the things that we need to know about our condition, about how we are saved, about how we ought to live as God's people, those things are made clear somewhere in the scriptures. There's going to be times where those things won't be clear, but somewhere else those things are made clear. Does that make sense? So they are clearly propounded in some place or another, so that, this is the good news, not only the learned but also the unlearned, whether you have a PhD in theology or you've never studied it a day in your life, each one of us has the capacity, using ordinary means, to figure out what God said here. Make sense? We all have the capacity and the ability to understand the scriptures. A simplified way of saying this definition comes from Kevin DeYoung, and this is actually taken from the book Taking God at His Words. All four of us pastors read this little book that Kevin DeYoung wrote, before, um, before actually teaching on this sermon series, because it's a very condensed, very good, easy-to-read way of explaining what we believe about the Word. And this is the definition he gives on the clarity of the Scriptures. He says, ordinary people, using ordinary means, can accurately understand enough of what must be known, believed, and observed for them to be faithful Christians. It's basically a summary of what we just talked about. You and I, ordinary people, we can know the Word. Can I get an amen? Okay, this is going to be a an interactive sermon, okay? So more talking from you guys is okay. More talking. All right, so that is what the clarity of the scriptures does mean. Essentially, what I want to communicate here is the reality that God is not hiding from us. It's not as if God is playing a cosmic game of peekaboo where we're not going to be able to understand what he's revealed to us. What we believe about the scriptures is that this is God's revelation, which, which means this is the way that God chose to reveal himself and his plans for the world to us. This is, is the revealing of himself. He's essentially saying, this is who I am. Read it, study it, figure it out. It's there. We are saying that he's knowable. He wants us to know him. But when it comes to clarity, there are people who have objections to this, and there's three different types of, of people that object to the clarity of the scriptures. First of all, there's the mystical objection, and these are the people that sound like hippies, if you've, if you've ever heard somebody talk and not say that they believe that the scriptures are clear, sometimes they might say something like this. Man, truth is mysterious, man. Okay? You have to realize we can't explain God with our words. Our words are like created and they fall so short. And so there's no way 
we should even try to understand what God is like. You make all of these theologies and these doctrines and these teachings, but really our words are so frail that they can't even come close to telling us what God is actually like. So don't even try. That's the mystical objection. And what we have to say to that, I'll agree in one tiny area. God is infinitely more than we can comprehend, right? But listen, just because... Here it is. God is infinitely more than what he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. That's what we'd said. But he is nothing less or nothing different than he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. Does that make sense? Though he is infinitely more, and I can't even come close to articulating the depths of the love that God has, it doesn't make any sense sometimes that he would love me. But when I think about it, he has told me that he does, and so I can believe him fully at what he has revealed. He's nothing different than what he's told himself, what he's told us that he is. Does that make sense? So that's the mystical objection. The second one, this is the Catholic or the insufficient objection. This one essentially says that God has revealed himself to us in the Bible. And, and yes, yes, we understand this is his revelation. This is authoritative. But there are some things he left out. And so we're going to we're going to add to it in some way, shape, or form. So in the Catholic Church, they do believe that the teachings in the history of the church, that is an equal authority as the scriptures. We obviously, as Protestants, would say, nope, not a chance. We do not acknowledge that whatsoever. But there are people who think that the Bible is insufficient in and of itself, and that we essentially need to supplement something to it so that it, it becomes more full. And to that we say, we believe that this is God's revelation of himself. And we do believe that it is fully sufficient for lives of godliness, for the salvation, to understand the salvation that we need. It is enough. God's word is enough for us. The third objection, that got really loud when I did that, so I won't do that again. The third objection that we have is the last one. This is the pluralistic objection, and this is the one that's probably most common in people's minds. They essentially say, can we really know what the scriptures mean anyway? I mean, really, all this interpretation thing, all of this hermeneutics, is just our attempt to try to, it's our opinion, really, as to what God's really like. We can't really know anything. So what you say is good for you, what I say is good for me, what he says is good for him, we don't really know, so let's not try. And to that I say, it's just not true. Imagine, you guys have probably heard this before, you've heard of the elephant and the blind men? You've heard that story? There's an elephant there, and a bunch of blind men come up, and they try, to, they try to figure out what the elephant is. And so they go up, and one guy goes and touches one of the tusks of the elephant. And he's like, oh, this is like the branch of a tree. We must be touching the branch of a tree. Another guy goes up to the elephant, and he's touching, and he touches its side, and he says, nope, this, it must be like a wall. Maybe it's like a house. It's hard. It won't move. Maybe that's what we're touching. The third blind guy goes up to the back of the elephant and touches the tail and says to himself, no, guys, we're touching a rope, okay? It's a rope or a hose or something like that. It's not a wall, it's not. And you get these guys who disagree, and they say, well, we can't really know what it is. But listen, the whole analogy breaks down when you realize this. What if the elephant says, I'm an elephant? Would it be humble of these blind men to say, no, no, you're not. You're clearly like a branch. No, you're like a wall. Don't tell us what you... I'm an elephant. The whole thing breaks down. Here's, here's what I'm saying, guys. God has told us what he's like. He says, I'm like this. Open it, read it, study me, and figure me out. I'm right here. 
I'm for you to know. The, the lie that we can't know God or that we're all just interpreting it differently and that's okay. That's not true. God has told us who he is and we need to be faithful to understand that and to teach that to other people. It's not humble of us to ignore God's word on that end and say, no, no, we're just going to try to figure you out on our own. We don't really know. That's not humble. Humility puts ourselves beneath the word and says that we can believe it because it is our authority. Amen? That makes sense? So those are the objections, and now we're going to move to the practical part. Again, the definition that ordinary people, you and I, using ordinary means can accurately understand enough of what must be known, believed, and observed for us to be faithful Christians. So getting practical. Why do we read the Bible? Do we read the Bible so that God is happy with us because we did our duty? We did our devotion time, and now he's pleased at me because I read my chapter a day or I read my daily bread. Is that why God's happy? No. God is pleased perfectly in the person of Jesus, whom he sent because he loves you. So why do we read this? We need to read our Bible with this in mind. We're reading it so that we get to know what God is like and how we ought to live as the people of God. That's why we read this. If you ever feel like you don't know how to live out your Christian life, Start reading this more. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds almost obvious, and, or maybe even patronizing at times, but the reality is, is we believe that he's told us who he is, and so we need to be responsible with what he's given us. There are some bad approaches that we've all done, though, when it comes to reading our Bibles. One of my favorite when I was in high school was the uh, Bible by osmosis technique. And this was the thought that as long as I had my Bible with me, take it to class with me, have it in my backpack, Make sure it was in my car. I got it. We're good. I'm knowing it. I have it. I have it on me. It's on my, I might have the Bible on my phone, which might make you feel really holy because I got it. I have the scriptures. I have access at all times. But here's the trick. It doesn't just absorb into you. We actually have to do this. Open the book and read it. We're not going to get it just because it's sitting on our nightstand collecting dust. We need to open it, read it, and study it so that we know what God is like and what the heart of God is like. Also, one of my favorites is the old, uh, I don't know what I need to read today, so I'm going to do the, the very professional, um, what is it called, the open and point method. Right there. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall delight. Oh. Mm. That's what I need for my spiritual walk going to cover me for the whole week, guys. Right there. That right there. Did I just read the Bible? Let's talk. We, you, guys, you can talk to me. Did I, did I really just read the Bible? Or did I read the Bible? I might have read some words and tried to instantly apply it to myself and call it good, but I did, I did zero work as far as actually studying the scriptures. You see how that's not an adequate Bible study method? What I want to also articulate is the reality we can't do it by osmosis, we can't do it just by open and point. We also can't just read the passages of scripture that we're familiar with. I, we all have our own passages that we love and hold dear to us, but if I only ever read my favorite portions of scripture, if I only ever read Psalm 32, and if I only ever read the Sermon on the Mount, and if I only ever read Ephesians 2, and that was all that I ever took in from God's word, what's the detriment there? I'm not taking in the whole counsel of God. I'm not taking in the entirety of what he wants to reveal to me. Instead, I'm saying, I'm just going to stick with the stuff I know because it's more comfortable. 
the book of Habakkuk, I'm not even quite sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, so I'm not going to go bother actually reading it. You guys know there's a book called Habakkuk? <laughs> Amos? Anybody have good devotions in Amos this morning? Fascinating. We're, we're, we're so quick to just read the things that we're familiar with. The, the other approach that's bad and a bad way to read our Bible is just me reading. And this is where you open up the Bible and assume right off the bat that everything written in here was directly, directly to me. Now, I do want to say everything in the Bible is for you, is for me, it is for all of us. But it was not written to us in that sense. There was an author of a book who wrote it to a specific audience who lived in a certain context, in a certain place of the world. And we need to realize that Paul's words to the church at Corinth, the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, those words were written to those people. There are principles that fully, fully come to us and we can know God and know how we ought to live through those. But it wasn't written directly to us. Does that make sense too? It was not originally directly to us. Some better approaches. Some better approaches to reading our Bibles. I want to start just by saying, start being consistent. Don't stop at chapter markers. Set yourself a plan to try to read a whole book of the Bible. It doesn't need to be the whole Old Testament in a day. Set yourself something practical. Say, you know, within the next two weeks, I want to read through the book of John. Or I want to read through tomorrow. I want to sit down and read through the book of Galatians in one sitting. Because a lot of times if we just stop at chapter markers or we stop at different headings, we miss the idea that God is trying to communicate through an entire letter. Paul wrote these letters, or Peter wrote letters to specific people with an entire idea in mind of what he wanted to communicate. Not just one little verse and pull it out here. One of my favorite posters when I was growing up in high school was this guy. It was a Christian poster, so it looked like Michael Jordan. But it was this guy who was up in the air dunking like this. And he was so close. The room is right here. And what was the verse that was on it? You guys know. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I tried to hold on to that promise. I tried to dunk, guys. It just did not happen. Is that what that passage means? Is it saying that I can do everything I set my mind to? No. What's the context of the book of Philippians? Paul is writing because he's in prison for the gospel. He's been put in jail, and he's sitting there saying that I can do and endure any type of suffering or anguish that comes my way for the sake of staying true to the gospel. That's what Paul's trying to communicate. He's not saying you can dunk if you want. You can be the best at your job. Not at all what that passage is saying, but we do me reading, right? We say this directly for me, 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 me. It applies to me. We'll get to me, but we've got to go to some other steps first. All right? Read the books you don't understand. This is another good idea. The books that you don't understand or aren't familiar with, read them. Take a legal pad with you and just start writing questions down that you don't understand. What is a Sadducee? What is a Pharisee? What is Hebron? What is... Start asking questions. Observe things about the text. Start figuring things out that we've may, maybe never read or studied before. Those are all better approaches to reading the Bible. But what I wanted to focus today on is teaching all of us a four-step method of very basic, but it will get us reading our Bibles rightly. Okay, how many steps? This is interactive part. Okay, so the first one of these four steps is called their town. Their town is right here. What is it called? In this phase of reading our Bibles, this is all in your sermon notes. If you have sermon notes, you might want to take this out because this could be probably the, the most helpful thing that I say today. The idea of their town is we have to understand as much as we can about the context of 
when and who and where it was written to. Does that make sense? So when we're reading something in the Bible, we don't automatically do me reading. We say, stop. All right, this is the book of Joshua. Who wrote this book? Why did they write it? What point in the timeline is this in? We start making observations. We start asking questions about the text. We're trying to figure out everything we can about their culture, about their time, what this meant for them. Okay, the second step is realizing, imagine that this aisle way is a river. This is the river that reminds us there are a ton of differences. Go ahead and flip to the next one, Declan. Recognize that the river is there. From where they live to where we live, there's a lot of things that are different. We're thousands of years removed, for one. There's a language barrier. You guys realize all of our Bibles are translated from the original languages. They didn't write it in English. So what we have right now, there's some communication issues, potentially. Maybe we have to understand some of what the original words were. We have to understand that there's a different culture, a different context. These people in the Old Testament were living underneath a different covenant than what we are living under now. You have to realize that all these differences are there. Then, the third step, go ahead and flip it, Declan, is we have to make a bridge from their town over to our town. When I say that, what I mean is we have to see what principles carry over from their land to ours and what stuff stays there. Whoa, wait a minute. You're saying some of the Bible doesn't apply to me? Not at all. Let me, let me tell you what I'm saying. So, for instance, with the Old Covenant, the sacrificial system, you guys ever read that in the Old Testament? How there were animals that had to be sacrificed for sin? If you read that and assumed that it applied directly to you, that would be a very messy way to worship, okay? None of you brought your sacrifices this morning. I'm disappointed in you. Where's the lambs? Where's the doves? You're not... You see how some of this stuff does not apply to us anymore? But maybe there's some principles from those texts that do carry over the bridge to us. That's the third part, the principalizing bridge. The fourth one and the last one is our town. This is where we take the truths that carried over, the truths about God, about what he wants his people to live like, and we apply them and imagine ways to apply them in our own world. I'm going to show you guys what I mean. Okay, get ready to talk with me. Open up your Bibles. We're first going to do an Old Testament example. Open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy. Yep, that's the book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 23. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 23. All right. Now, you'll preface. When we first read this text and then the one we're going to do from the New Testament, I think all of us are going to assume that, probably naturally, that it does not apply to us. That's written for other people. That's not for me. Let's read it together. And then we're going to walk through this process together. Does that make sense? I want, I want you guys this question. Shout stuff out. Raise your hands. Whatever you want to do. Let's, let's start observing things and asking questions. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25. I'll read them first, and then we'll start observing things. Deuteronomy 23, 24. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish. But... You shall not put any in your bag. Riveting for devotions, isn't it? Verse 25. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Mm. Right there. That did it for your morning devotions, didn't it? 
if we just read the Bible, we're not reading the Bible, okay? So, name some observations. Start listing off some things as, as we read this together, some things that you noticed, or maybe some questions that you have. Just start throwing them out. Can a vineyard be a kitchen? Great question. Do you guys have vineyards at your house? Very few of us probably have vineyards. I knew, Dan. I knew that would be you. Yes. All right, so we don't have vineyards. Maybe that's a difference we need to investigate. Okay, what else? Yeah, feeling an immediate need is there. You can take stuff. Yeah. A question I have, isn't that called stealing nowadays? Like when I read this, I'm like, you can do what? I don't think my friends would be cool with this. You know, just walking into their fridge, grabbing their stuff and leaving. Think, I think people go to jail for stuff like this. Who's, Mark says, who's my neighbor? Who's he talking about here? If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, who is that? Great question. What else? There were more hands, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So be careful when you go to your friend's orchards is, is the, main, the main theme here. All right, so we're asking some questions. I have some more basic questions, too. What's Deuteronomy? Do you guys know what that means? What's the point of the heading of this book, and how might that shed some context on what we're talking about? I'll answer it for us. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, Deuteronomy. It means second, or two, duo, namas, or the, the Greek word for law, the second giving of the law. Who knows the context, what that means? The law was given a second time. What's that? I couldn't hear again. Legal, yeah, the legal code. That's the law. Why was it given a second time? Moses gave it the first time. What happened to the first generation? They died. Why did they die? Because they did not obey. Because in the law, there are blessings for obedience and there's curses for disobedience. So now we get to the second giving of the law. This is given a second time because the first generation didn't get it. And now we've moved over to the second generation. What are they about to inherit? The promised land. Good. Some of you guys understand some of the story and where this fits within the whole story. They're about to enter the promised land. And now Moses, in giving them the law the second time, is saying, hey, remember when we gave this the first time to your parents and they didn't listen and they all died? You might want to listen this time. Second giving of the law. If you want to inherit this land, you ought to live like this. I've saved you out of Egypt. I've already rescued you. Now you're my people. Live this way. And then he tells them to live this way. You see how asking questions about the text can start to piece it together for you so that we can understand why this is even in here? What are some of the differences? That's some of the their town stuff. What's the river? What are some of the differences between them and us? Go ahead. Yeah, maybe this would be interpreted as stealing nowadays, like we touched on. What else? It got, it got to be a little bit louder, huh? Yeah, they're all farming community. We don't all have orchards and vineyards and you know what I mean. We don't have a field of standing grain. We have the refrigerator, wonderful invention, right? We have a pantry we can take food out of. What else is different? What was that, Nate? Liability policies. They might not have had those the same way we do. <laughs> Good. What about covenants? We're not under the law. That's something very important for us to understand about this text. We are not underneath this law. 
is all scripture still useful and profitable? Thank you. Good. Good answer. Yes, it is. So what of this applies to us? There's a lot of differences. What do we take over? What principles can we learn about God and about how we are to live from this text? What do you guys think? Yeah. Thank you. That's the first one I came up with, too. The sharing, the willingness to be able to give what you have to those who you know. So Mark asked the question, who's the traveler or who's the neighbor? Who's the person who ever would, would be considered your neighbor nowadays? Maybe, maybe for the people of Israel, their neighbor were these surrounding nations. Maybe that's what he's actually referring to. But for us, who are the people that we interact with? Friends, family, people you invite over to your house, maybe somebody who knocks on your door who needs something and is asking for something. As the people of God, God expects what? Generosity. A heart that realizes that everything we have is from him. And so if somebody comes over to my house, I don't have any right to get mad if they eat some of my food. <laughs> it might sound a little bit weird, but if I invite somebody, if I'm hospitable to them, if they come into my land, my house, I should share with them generously. Now, it would be wrong for the person, this is the second principle I pulled out, it would be wrong of them to say, oh, thank you so much for sharing, and open up a bunch of those reusable Meyer bags and just start loading your pantry into their car, bag after bag after bag, and say, thank you for being the people of God, and walk away. Right? That would not be right. And God is clearly saying that that's wrong to do. So you see how we, we talk about what principles come over to us, where we are in our town, and then we start to apply those creatively. Come up with ideas to be generous to other people. When somebody asks you for something, I think the Bible says something about give it to them, because God, God will judge. Maybe we need to think about those things, the whole counsel of God. All right, we're going to do one more example. This comes from the book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 9. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Not something to chop with, but an activity or a deed. Acts chapter 9. The flipping of pages is like music to my ears. It's like a heavenly chord, Malachi. All right, Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 35. We're going to do the same exact thing, but be even more talkative. Ask more questions. Over here, their town. We're going to read it and ask questions. 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. We might be tempted to think, wow, that's a great story. Isn't that neat what happened in the book of Acts? Cool, and move on. But what if we apply the same method to this text, okay? What's some, what's some observations? What's some questions you have? Yeah, why doesn't this happen now? Does this happen now? Good question. Paul. Oh. Why does he have to make his bed? See, this is the perfect text for all of you parents out there to demand that your children make their beds in the morning. It's in the Bible, see? Again, what is this really, what crosses over? What's he trying to communicate? Good, what else? What are other things we observe? Yeah, who was Ananias, she said. Who was he? Why was he paralyzed? What happened? Maybe we could look that up. Where's Lida? What would you say? Yeah, it seems like a supernatural event. Peter told, I've never told somebody be healed and get up and they've done it. 
Yeah, yeah, imagine being paralyzed and not using those muscles for eight years and instantly standing up and doing work. Making, rolling up your mat, making your bed, whatever. What does making your bed mean in that culture? It's not necessarily the same thing as our bed, maybe, but rolling up your mat, what does that mean? What other questions? Why was Peter roaming around? What was he doing? That's a great question. What were you saying? Yeah, he said through the name of Jesus specifically. Jesus Christ heals you. Not I heal you, but Jesus heals you. Boom, through Peter talking and it happened. See how there's a lot of questions? I had some just geographical stuff. Like where's Lida? Where's this land of Sharon? I want to show you guys something fascinating. You ready for this? Typically these are in the back of your Bible. There are maps back here. Did you guys know this? When I was in eighth grade, I wrote up a report. They're trying to tell you like, what you're going to do for your career. And I'm like, I don't know, trying to figure this out. And I'm like, I like maps. Maybe I'll be a map maker. I have no idea. Maps are cool. Look at the maps. Find one back there that talks about the land of Israel in Jesus' day. You probably have one in your Bible. Maybe not, but you probably do. Mine is entitled, I have one. Where did it go? There we go. Palestine in the time of Jesus. This is what mine looks like if yours doesn't have one. So we have this Israel, Israel or Palestine here in the time of Jesus. These are some of the names where some of the cities are. And I looked it up. And Lida is right here. My Bible didn't tell me where Sharon was, so I Googled it to try to figure it out. Sharon is this coastal land in between Caesarea and Joppa. So in this land, this is where the people turned to the Lord. From Lida, that's where Aeneas was. And this whole area is where people were turning to the Lord. That's a big chunk of land, right? It's not just some tiny little town, but... A town plus a whole coastal region is turning to the Lord as a result of this. Interesting to know. Paul mentioned this. He said, why was Peter roaming around? Why was he going here and there or to and fro? Whatever your version says. Who knows the answer? Don't be shy. Let's talk. Let's, let's, flip, a, let's flip a verse back. Go to verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, so that's the region he, we're talking about, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the church is growing. And if you start to ask the questions about what is the book of Acts, what does that mean? It's short for Acts of the Apostles, which means after Jesus came to the earth, died, rose again, and ascended to be at the Father's right hand, he poured out his spirit in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost to his people. He called these 12 men specifically the Apostles. One of them was Judas. And so he got replaced by Matthias. You see all of this happen in the book of Acts. And he called these men specifically to be the ones who went out into Judea, Samaria, into the ends, out into the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel to people. So what is Peter doing as he's walking to and fro, going here and there? He has a job to do. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to people, to anyone who will listen. He's telling them about Jesus and how he's the fulfillment of all of this Old Testament prophecy. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's here. He's here. And so he goes to... A, he goes to a crippled man, and he says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and get up. And he does. What's the point of this text? What carries over? We talked about some of those differences still. We don't, we're not, we don't live in that region. There's a different climate. Again, there's a different language 2,000 years ago. But what carries over from this text? What do you guys think? What was that, Cozy? Yeah, we need to share the gospel. Just as they were specifically commissioned to, you and I, the Great Commission, we are all to share the news of the gospel with people. So that does carry over. What else? Faith. What, what a little bit more? We said that? Good job, Serena. Yeah, faith is important. 
Yeah. How they validated the message or gave testimony or witness to who Jesus was and that he actually rose again is in his name all these miraculous things were happening. A lot. If you've ever read through the book of Acts, there are a lot of supernatural healings and deliverances and things like that happening. Does this text mean that we should start a deliverance ministry just like that because Peter did? I don't think so. But what does come across from this text? As great as, great as that healing was of Aeneas, look at verse 35 again. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. They saw who? Aeneas, the man who was healed. They've known him for eight years, probably, as the crippled guy, or that's the crippled guy's house, and now he's up walking around doing work? What would their question be? How did that happen? And Peter and Aeneas are probably there to say, I'm glad you asked. I would love to tell you how that happened. Hey, remember that guy Jesus who was killed? Uh, they start talking. They start sharing this gospel with them. So as great as Aeneas' healing was, the greater truth is that God intended to turn all of these people's hearts to himself through this act. Do you see how we start pulling these principles out of a text? This is stuff that you and I can do. We can understand what's being written here and how it then applies to our lives. What are the four steps again? Their town, recognize the, the principalizing bridge, what principles carry over, and lastly, our town. Where do we start applying a text? Where don't we instantly apply a text? Good, you got it. All right, so those are the four steps. If you want to write those down, feel free in your notes to do that. The last thing I want to touch on, and I'll just touch on this briefly, is what do we do when we come to a passage or a part of Scripture where we've done this and we still have no idea? Not everything is clear, is what those confessions said. Not everything is perfectly easy to understand. Some of it's really, really difficult and doesn't make sense. What do we do when we come to a passage like that? Yeah, that's the question. Let's pray and we'll be done. No. <laughs> that's the question that we have in our minds, right? When we read our Bibles, we want to know, can I know this? How do I find answers? And what I want to say is, what do we do about these passages like the imprecatory psalms, if you've ever heard of that term, a psalm like 137, where at the end of it, instead of praying for his enemies like Jesus teaches us to do, David or the psalmist is sitting there saying, you know what, all my enemies, God, pour your wrath out on them and do it to such a degree that you dash their babies' heads against the rocks. That's awful. That's atrocious. But it's in the Bible. So do we just ignore it and push it to the side and say, I don't, I don't get it, and it doesn't sound good, so I'm moving on? Or do we try to understand what that meant? What significance does this type of psalm have? Maybe I'm reading it wrong, or maybe I just don't know the answers, but the answers are out there. What do we do when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul starts just flippantly talking about the baptism of the dead, like everybody knows what that is. You guys ever baptized a dead person or seen that happen at Gross Park in the lake? I don't think we've ever done that. It's not a practice we've had or will ever have, but he talks about it like they all know what he's talking about. So maybe there was a cultural thing there that they get that doesn't carry over. Maybe. What do we do when we get to genealogies, like beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke? The genealogies of, of Jesus Christ and his ancestry, and both of those don't look the same. <gasps> oh, no. There's errors in the Bible. My whole faith is ruined. What do I do? Or do we start digging and asking questions? 
What I want to say is when a passage isn't clear, we need to, number one, be thankful. Which probably isn't our first response. <laughs> number one, be thankful. Because these tough passages make us actually read and wrestle with the text. They make us ask the tough questions. What's going on here? I don't understand. They make us wrestle. If you aren't wrestling with the text, you're probably not reading it very well. Secondly, these types of passages cause us to be humbled because you and I don't have perfect knowledge and won't be able to comprehend everything about God fully. We can know him rightly and accurately, but we might not get everything fully, and that's okay. Be reminded that we don't need perfect understanding to have a strong faith in God. Classic example of this is Abram. When God called him, he called him to where? A land he didn't know. The text makes that clear. So what does Abram do? He goes. He has faith that says, uh, God is talking to me, I'm going to follow him. He didn't know. And Abraham, he was a rich guy, he had a lot of stuff, so it was quite the ordeal for him to get up and move from one section of the Middle East to the other. But he had the faith, though he didn't know perfectly, to still act on what he did know. And that was, uh, God's talking to me, I should probably trust him. <laughs> Does that make sense? I want to leave you with this. Contrary to what a lot of people will tell you, answers are out there. That would be a great place for an amen. Just saying. That was bad, but we'll try again. <laughs> Don't believe the lie that says that we can't know anything. God is not hiding from us. He wants us to know him. That's why he's given us his word. That's why he's given us this general revelation of himself. We can see how incredible he is by the sunsets he makes and the magnificence of trees and hills and all the beauty of fall. We can see how good God is and how powerful he is just by looking at nature, but we can know exactly what he's like by how he's revealed himself in the scriptures. And that should give us great comfort, right? It should. He's not hiding us. Kevin DeYoung's definition said, ordinary people using ordinary means can accurately understand enough of what must be known, believed and observed, for them to be faithful Christians. I encourage you, if you have a lot of questions and you feel like you have no answers, invest in a study Bible. Ask any of us four pastors about the questions you have. We're not necessarily going to have all the answers too, but we would love to help try to figure them out with you. Ask us what good books to read. If you've ever read the Old Testament and you're like, how is God okay with like, the genocide of an entire nation down to its women and children? Because that happens in the Old Testament. How, how is that something that I can reconcile with the character of God? If you have a question like that, we have book recommendations, like the book that's called God is Not a Moral Monster, and it walks through those difficult passages and helps us to understand what God is doing. There are resources out there, and we want to help with those. Find a Christian who studied the Bible longer than you've been alive and ask them, right? We always think, like, this, oh, it's just me, me in my den, in my study. I got to, okay, I didn't know what that meant, but I'm going to move on. Ask someone in your family. Ask a friend. Say, I've read the scripture. I have no idea what it means. Do you have any insight on that? Oh, in fact, I shared a message on that once. Thank you. Use the people who are in the body of Christ to find answers to your questions. He's not hiding from us. We are left finally with this challenge. I want to dare each one of you and myself to get to know this book. I dare you to get to know this book. It's knowable. And why do I say get to know this book? Because by getting to know this book, you get to know your God because he's knowable. He has not hid himself from us. He's revealed himself to us. 
And so we have the privilege of studying this, getting to know God through his word. And I do say privilege. Listen to this from 1 John chapter 5. This is chapter 2. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You hear that? His commandments, what he wants for us is not burdensome. Studying the word is difficult and hard and does take work. I'm not trying to pretend that it doesn't. But God is knowable, and it is a privilege. It's not a burden to study your Bible, to read your Bible. If we ever approach it like, oh, I've got to, you, you're already off, off the ship. We read this so that we get to know our God. We get to know the heart of God what he wants for us, and how we ought to live. And that's a privilege to be the people of God. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Help us all to know it, to study it, to find our delight in it. Your word says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And my prayer is that each one of us would do that, that we would behold you in your word, that we would see you for how great you are, and that we would live our lives accordingly. It's not always comfortable, God. You call us to repentance. You call us to a, a death of ourself, where we lay our lives down for other people, where we give generously even when it's uncomfortable. But you're worth it. Your kingdom is worth it. We pray that you would come again in glory. Come again soon, Lord. Thank you for your word. Amen. Stand together, I want to close in, a, in a, just a benediction for you. This is 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. It says the following, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, his Son, Christ Jesus. He is the true God and eternal life. Amen? Amen. You guys are dismissed.